Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, February 5th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. Joining me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Boy, we got a lot to talk about today. The Senate at 5.30 this morning closed debate on the coronavirus relief package after a uh, 13 or 15 or 17 hours of what's called a votorama, where all kinds of uh, amendments and poss- possible emendations to the bill uh, were debated. And uh, uh, w- the main uh, change that was made to it was the was the passage of a resolution forbidding the increase in the minimum wage proposed by Iowa Republican Senator Joni Ernst and passed uh, by the uh, senators um, because Joe Manchin, the conservative Democrat from West Virginia, uh, voted with uh, the Republicans to to uh, not to raise the federal minimum wage. Otherwise, the package is pretty much intact. So the bipartisan 10-senator negotiation uh, over the bill did not um, did not succeed, or or was steamrollered, or some version of the two, and uh, and we're going to hear a lot of talk about how this is. Uh, Joe Biden said he wanted to bring everybody together, but he just pushed this package through. The most interesting aspect of this comes this morning, also in an op-ed by uh, uh, Larry Summers. Uh, the former president of Harvard, the former head of Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, who says that the stimulus package, the coronavirus stimulus package, is too large and is an overcorrection for a mistake that he says, though I think this is crazy, he says that they made during the Obama year, the the Obama stimulus negotiation uh, and deal-making at the beginning of 2009, where that bill was too small, and so they're overcorrecting, they're making it too large, and the amount of spending is going to crowd out any possibility, not only is it going to crowd out any possibility of going with other Democratic wish list items like public investments and infrastructure and various other things, but that it has a real possibility of overheating the economy, which is doing better than we think it is or than people think it is. He says basically there's a 20 to $40 billion per month shortfall. I'm not quite sure what that means, and that they're filling it with $150 billion a month, and that this is. Uh, this is going to trigger inflation and destroy everything. Now, I have to say one thing before we get to the whole debate and discussion. The argument that the stimulus was too large was also very much present in 2009, though not from Larry Summers and people like that. Um, And the argument was made then that we were heading into unknown and and uncharted waters once the economy recovered because there would be massive inflation uh, because of the uh, public spending. And of course, A, that didn't happen. And B, the uh, it's not that the stimulus in 2008 was too small. That is a fantasy because the stimulus was so huge that it represented the largest single piece of federal spending in the history of the world. And it sort of opened the door to the kinds of numbers that we're seeing now, actually 10 years later or 11 years later. But uh, the idea that they could have gotten more than a, than a trillion dollars 
which is what I think it was nine hundred and seventy billion dollars, the Obama stimulus. I mean, what what planet even even with Obama's landslide, which wasn't that large a landslide, and his position like that was would have been a bridge. It was already a bridge too far. They already lost lost the house in twenty ten in part because the stimulus. Uh, because the stimulus was too big and represented a new form of federal spending that, you know, basically incepted the Tea Party uh, or, you know, was part of that movement at the time. So, you know, yeah, you can go back in time and fantasy and say, well, you know, the real problem with that was too small. I mean, the you know, too small. That bill was was un- unimaginably large at the time, and nobody said it was too small then. So uh, where are we? Well, one of the one of the interesting things about him going back and saying, you know, oh, mea culpa, it was it was too small, is that he's in in this new uh, salvo he's just issued. Larry Summers, who everyone should know, is kind of despised by the economic progressive left. They don't like him. What he's saying to them, it's kind of like a like a parent chiding a a, a child. He's saying, you know, if you really want to do all the things that you you want to do in the future, you actually can't spend all this money now. You've got to set some aside for all your projects. So there's he's he's threading an interesting needle here because the economic progressive left wouldn't otherwise trust what he's saying. But he's what he's arguing is that if you want to do all these go big, go bold, progressive projects down the road, which is which is certainly what they've been pressing Biden to do with the COVID through the COVID relief bill. Now he's saying you, you're going to have to calm down with this. This is too much. It could overheat the economy. The inflationary pressures is, is seems to be the big concern for him. But I let from a political standpoint, it's, it's kind of a, it, in some ways buttresses what the group of 10 Republicans who went to the white house last week, or was that earlier this week? I don't know. Time has no meaning. Earlier anymore. This week. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Uh, it, it buttresses a lot of what they were arguing, um, certainly about, you know, targeting this in such a way that it doesn't, for example, you know, uh, spike the economy down the line. Uh, Noah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I had sort of a, uh, an instinctual, a uh, gut terror of inflation. Um, the the I, you know, anybody who's spent any time reading Hayek uh, shares that terror because the effects of inflation aren't purely economic; they are social and psychological. Um, when the money in your wallet stops being a reliable metric of social stability, a lot of weird things happen. And uh, a lot of uh, social and political instability can follow. And at a time in our political evolution in which we have sort of a rampant sort of paranoia that manifests in violent outbursts, uh, the prospect of an inflation crisis or even just excessive inflation beyond the 2% that the Fed likes to target uh, strikes me as an existential terror that everybody should take very seriously. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm. Uh, I, I, this is cute. You're, you're. That it's really, honestly. I feel like you just said something really cute because you're not yet 40 years old. I'm six years. I lived through hyperinflation in the United States. You, you didn't uh, in the in the in the mid to late you know 70s. Uh, I read books. I read my books. I know you read books. Well, I, I mean, uh, it did not, in fact, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, Weimar Germany. We didn't have that kind of hyperinflation. But um, uh, inflation was a, a terrifying force in the 1970s because the the effect of inflation is to eat away at the value of the of, of the dollar and and uh, at the value of, of your money. And 
to create the conditions under which, you know, one week your groceries cost $75 and the next week they cost 80. And then the week after that, they cost 85 and your, um, your salary isn't going up commensurate with the increase. Um, uh, so it can provoke, you know, crazy violence in the, in the, or, you know, crazy political alterations in the Weimar Republic sense, or it can um, further depress the emotion, the spirit, degrade and, 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 uh, and ruin the national spirit. Um, And the remedies for it are, are painful. Right. Well, the remedy, the remedy, I mean, we're always talking about shock therapy, but no, the remedy, the remedy for the, the remedy for the inflationary spiral that was never going to end was a vicious recession that the that Paul Volcker of the Fed essentially compelled the United States to go into, and it was one of the most successful fiscal policies in the history of fiscal policy. I mean, the engineers uh, it, of that sort of thing have since turned on it. People like Jeff Sachs, who yeah, uh, well, you know, who used to be very you know very vocal advocates of the sort of like uh, you know the tactics that were required to whip inflation and. And hurt, hurt really bad for a short period of no, time. It was it was awful. The, uh, I mean the the unemployment rate went up over ten percent. It was it was a terrible terrible experience. Uh, it was necessary, and uh, it wasn't shock therapy because it took two years. But you know, it's been basically we have been living without inflation for four decades. In in all, in all, but in you know, I mean, people can argue about what what commodities are used to measure this and whether or not they're the right commodities and all of that. Um, but it is a really astonishing thing that our our experience of the prices of goods that we buy is that they go down over time, not that they go up. That is a very strange phenomenon, and it is something that, yeah, could – there's no reason the oddity of what happened with the Obama stimulus, Abe, is that it didn't trigger an inflationary spiral, nor did QE2, QE3, QE4, this sort of, uh, you know, like loose money policy, did not trigger inflation. Everybody that I knew was absolutely certain that we were headed for, you know, for Weimar and it, and it, it didn't, didn't happen. Um, I wonder if that's uh, contributed to the fact that we haven't heard much of this argument this time around and, and until this article. I mean, it's also a fact that um, because the uh, relief bill was, was also a uh, progressive wish list that that had taken the, the criticism of that had taken the focus off it, off the um, uh, uh, off, off criticism of it as just simply being too big, um, even if it were, even if it is a focused relief bill. Right. Well, I mean, the point that he, I guess he's making is they just, they did pass a giant <laughs> relief bill in December, and now they're going to pass a 900 billion bill, and now they're going to pass 1.9. So they're going to basically, they're going with three, trillion dollars of relief. And what Summer is saying is, you know, uh, unemployment is going down. The economy is in better shape than we expected. Uh, and, you know, you're going to overheat it, uh, which is not anything that a- anybody has been worrying about. It's like you're, you know, it's like you're, um, 
you're flooding the zone when the zone doesn't need to be flooded. And then there is this question of, of, of the, you know, the, the wish, the actual wish list that goes beyond Corona. So here's, what's interesting. Like Larry Summers is saying, we can't get all these other fun things that we want. Well, I don't know. Maybe we don't really, you know, I, I don't want them. (laughs) So is you know has Biden done us some kind of bizarre favor? Obviously, you know I mean if 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 Summers's warnings are wrong and we don't end up with in an inflationary spiral and all this, but we are spending more money than we can actually legitimately spend. You know it's crowding out other spending. Well, uh, so you know I mean, the criticism of the stimulus was not not dissimilar from criticism of um, New Deal spending, which was that it prolonged the uh the recession and made the recovery more sluggish because it created all these incentives for businesses not to hire and it it reduced you know that we expected here for example that the economy is one one of summer's arguments here which makes a lot of sense is that the economy is recovering is that people are going back to work unemployment is going down consumer spending is going up and everybody's sitting on approximately 1.5 trillion dollars that they just didn't spend over the last year and that pent up demand is going to manifest this year. And you can put the brakes on that in this, in this similar way that they, Summers isn't making this argument, but the economists who were skeptical of the stimulus said that it crowded out the kind of, uh, the kind of investments, capital investments that businesses would otherwise make in an environment that wasn't completely distorted. Right. Well, here, let me read the key passage then in this, which is, Long before COVID-19, Summers writes, the U.S. economy faced fundamental problems of economic injustice, slow growth, and inadequate public investment in everything from infrastructure to preschool education to renewable energy. These are at the heart of Biden's emphasis on building back better. If the stimulus proposal is enacted, Congress will have committed 15% of GDP with essentially no increase in public investment to address these challenges. After resolving the coronavirus crisis, how will political and economic space be found for the public investments that should be the nation's highest priority? So what I get here is, what is this, like some uh, zombie uh, zombie Reaganomics? Like basically all the money is just going to, ta- to taxpayers <laughs> instead of to, you know... Uh, lend lease to build a, you know, to build five bridges over the Mississippi River. I mean, this is an interesting kind of thing he's saying, which is, this is terrible. All the money is going to go to American households and not to, you know, the preschool education establishment. So what is he trying to do? Get me to support it? (laughs) I mean, it's kind of... It's kind of bizarre when you well, think about it, it that I, they have been they've been they have been walked into a situation in which one of the leading liberal economists, who is himself not, by the way, you know, as you say, not a, a member of the progressive left, is bemoaning the fact that the money is going to taxpayers and not to unions. Well, and th- what's to stop them from spending more money on the stuff they want anyway? I mean, there isn't, right? They'll just, you can hike taxes. There's a lot of ways to justify further spending, even if we are, even if Summers' predictions about the stimulus are correct. Um, and I don't have any confidence at all that, you know, warnings about inflation or even being in the midst of an inflationary <laughs> spike is going to stop 
you know, congressional Democrats from just spend, spend, spend. I mean, they have had, they've been sitting and waiting to do a lot of these progressive projects for some time. And I think, you know, they're not all, certainly if you remember the Green New Deal, economic sense wasn't actually a bedrock of its proposal. It didn't, doesn't have to make economic sense for them to pursue it. Uh, anyway, so obviously that some version of this bill is going to pass. The summer's op-ed is uh, too little, too late if it was ever going to convince anyone. Um, where does this leave us in the world uh, that I, I I propose that Biden would be making a brilliant Machiavellian play to uh, take the cup from that he was the chalice that he was being handed by the 10 Republican senators because he would not only end up getting some version of the coronavirus relief, and then he would obviously would have had Larry Summers' support in uh, shrinking the size of the package, um, but that he would basically lead, he would take the Republican civil war to a new level of bloody horror, and Democrats could sit there watching, eating popcorn as the right tore itself apart um, over the rhinos, you know, giving Biden what he wanted. Uh, But that was Wednesday, and this is Friday, and that's now uh, that's now over with. Yeah, but that seems like a mistake because nobody on the right gets energized over policy anymore. They are they get really jazzed about people, and you know yeah. their perceived persecution complexes. And and it, you know I'm, I'm Ava briefly. I just think that there's something to be said here over the minor consternation that um, was caused by Mitt Romney's uh, child stimulus proposal. I don't exactly know what else to, to call it. Um, some of the criticism of it is a little unfair um, insofar as it's eliminating a lot of tax uh, tax relief. So it's essentially just allowing people to keep their own money. And it does eliminate some welfare programs that are redundant and hard to use. And I don't find that to be- Well, we should, we, should explain what it, we should explain what it is. Yeah. So you... it's hard to describe. I described it as best as I could. It's a child- relief package that gives you a, a significant amount of money on a monthly basis for having a child. Um, it phases out after two, 200,000 in income for people who are single and 400,000 for couples. So it's a big, you know, big threshold and it's administered by the social security administration as opposed to the IRS, which a lot of progressives like, and I'm persuaded by because it, uh, it's easier for social security to access people who don't have spotty records with the IRS, which is like low income tax filers. Um, but beyond that, Beyond the, the, you know, cutting, cutting the relief, uh, pa- tax relief uh, so that it just consolidates that and lets you keep your own money and eliminates some redundant, um, welfare, uh, programs. It, it does risk, and I'm persuaded by the arguments that suggest that it risks mimicking a, um, a UBI, a, a minimum basic income because it, it phases out with, uh, earnings. And as we know from, the history of every attempt at creating a negative income tax, that that does create disincentives for work. Once you get to around 25000 30000 in income, you have less incentive to go out and actually work. This is something that really gets the hockles up on the left because of how dare you? How could you even suggest such a, such a horrible thing that people are lazy and don't want to do this? No, it's just simple incentives. And it's been, it's been observed in places from New Jersey to Finland. Um, we have a track record that demonstrates this. And I think that argument carries a lot of weight. And to the extent that it does, it seems to have persuaded even people like Marco Rubio, uh, who came out against this thing, uh, who is himself sort of a natalist Republican. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, first of all, I, I mean, I, I, I no longer trust that Marco Rubio's positions on anything are anything but marketing. 
Uh, he decided for marketing reasons that this was not something that he would want to support, though I think at, at another time in his in his life he would have agreed to this. It's not the problem with referring to it as a universal basic income uh, is that it's it's only for parents and it it uh, it's a three hundred and fifty dollar per month stipend for for children under four and a two hundred and fifty dollar a month stipend for children between the ages of five and seventeen. And its purpose, you remember I said uh, Larry Summers was complaining that there was no support for uh, preschool education. Well, this is support for preschool education. That's part of the idea here. I'm not sure I'm for it because I think all these things are always have, have you know, will end up having perverse incentives and all that. But um, the the Republican Party that stands around talking about how, you know, we need to do, you know, provide help for parents, uh, but we don't want to enrich and empower the education blob, doesn't have much in the way of room to maneuver except to use child tax credits. And uh, and so I, I you know, I, so don't do it at all or don't, don't, don't do something that is family friendly or that is, you know, parents first or child first, uh, because you don't want to do that and you want to only do global things. But then you can't talk, you can't stand around talking about how we're going to help parents because there's no help for parents from the federal level, except either pumping money into the preschool educate and pumping money into this education blob or not. I mean, I don't know where you go with it. What, what are you giving them? This is a version of of, uh, you know, it's a way of doing school choice. It's a way of doing uh, preschool. It's all of that. Anyway, and and support, by the way, for, you can say it's like welfare, but it's also support for people who might, for if a woman, uh, you know, wants to go out of the house and work, she has money to help pay for childcare that isn't just, you know, schooling. Anyway, having said that, it's it didn't go anywhere. It's not going anywhere. So this is all a kind of weird theoretical debate. Abe, I'm sorry, Noah and I both interrupted you, but maybe you've oh, already. It, yeah, the, the the point's long past. Don't worry about it. Okay, so um, with all this talk about the economy and the child child tax credits and uh, whether or not the, the stimulus is too big or too small or too large or too inflationary, if you want to get some real insight on where that is going and how it affects your income and your money and your investments, you got to look to our friends at the Bonson Group with their two great internet products, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. David Bonson runs a 27-person bi-coastal financial management firm with $2.7 billion under management. He and his 27 financial professionals uh, bring uh, an uncommon level of insight and hard analysis and serious observation of data to the decision-making that they uh, engage in to help husband and grow the assets of the people who have invested in their fund. So if you are feeling confused and who isn't by all of these changes that are going on right now and what effect they might have in the short, medium, and long term and how that affects your financial picture and your family's financial picture, you really can't do much better than going with the rigorous, serious, uh, fact-based analysis that you get from the Bonson Group 
and its internet products, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. Check them out. Check out the Bonson Group, B-A-H-N-S-E-N, for the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry. And we thank the Bonson Group for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Okay, we got so much to talk about. Where do we go now? Uh, uh, Should we go to Ben Sass? Okay, so Ben Sass, senator from uh, Nebraska, uh, just elected to a second term, former university president, um, uh, is being censured by the Nebraska Republican Party, of which he is arguably the senior official, having just been reelected in November uh, uh, in a state that Trump carried, but with uh, 75,000 more votes than Trump got. And uh, having won the one area in Nebraska, uh, the city of Omaha, that Trump that uh, that Biden carried, so Biden carried it, not Trump, but Sass won Omaha, and the Nebraska Republican Party is censuring him in part. Uh, in the actual censure resolution, it says that he is being censured for having defamed the person and reputation of one Donald J. Trump. And Sass issued a five-minute video statement about this that you can go look up on YouTube that is absolutely fantastic. And uh, Christine, you want to... Yeah, it's it's it was wonderful in part because I I hope it, it's a the first uh, blow of the uh, Republican cult of personality that's overtaken uh, the right for the last uh, four years, if not longer. Um, what he says is like this this party, you know, he basically said, I welcome the censure, which was great. He's like, go ahead. Every time I vote my conscience, if you wouldn't need to censor me, you go ahead and do that. Uh, so he called their bluff, which I like. Um, he, he gave a, he gave an example of the kind of leadership that we've been talking about for a while has been missing on the right, which is not putting your finger to the wind and then going with, you know, the, the moment's ties or the, the latest Twitter battle, but saying, okay, here are the principles that you elected me to follow. This is how I'm following them. If you don't like it, you may censure me. Obviously the, the subtext being, and if you don't like it in six years, you can vote me out of office. But he, he focused very specifically on attacking the cult of personality. And that is really important for someone, uh, for a conservative leader to do. So I, that was the part of the, the video that I appreciated the most. I mean, what he says in the video is, um, you know, Nebraskans are not hysterics. Uh, we're calm, measured people who can make decisions and choices. Um, I have won two commanding uh, victories in two elections. I promised that I would vote my conscience. That was what I said in 2014. It's what I said in my uh, in my uh, acceptance speech when I won in 2014. Uh Apparently, the voters of Nebraska uh, seem very satisfied with the work that I do because I won a larger, uh, you know, I won a, a, a very commanding election in 2020, better than Donald Trump. And the reason that you're all going through this and you can do this, go ahead, go ahead and do it. Like I work for the voters, not not for not for you. And the reason uh, that you're doing this is that Donald Trump lied to you. He lied to you about the election. He lied to you about how he won the election, which he did not win. And his and his uh, deceits and dishonesties and uh, and game playing 
then uh, inexorably led to the events of January 6th. And uh, and if you want to believe lies instead of the truth, you are welcome to do so. But he trusts that the Nebraska Republican Party and the voters of Nebraska are 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 better than that. And he says, uh, cults of personality are not conservative. And the idea that you are, you know, sacrificing everything you believe in to the reputation of one, you know, the weird, the weird embrace of one dude is a very strange thing. And he also mentioned, he also said that making uh, politics into a religion is not conservative. Right. um, Which I called it as committee members, political addicts. Yeah, yeah, which I thought was great, and and you know, and the thing is, his tone um, was 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 perfect and and novel because even while he was saying, you know, you've been led um, by virtue of Trump's lies about the election down this wrong path, um, he said it. Uh, there was the, the tone was different from from that of everyone who makes uh, you know sort of similar um, claims. He was he was by tone itself, he was um, sort of defying. The idea that we should be, uh, you know, sort of um, rage addicts, or I think I think he said, or something like yeah, that. counter rage addicts, right? right? right. I mean, he's yeah. not a rage addict about Trump, right? He's talking calmly and deliberately about what happened and why he make made makes the decisions that he makes. And that's kind of what I th- I think I'm actually going to write a little bit about this today because it's very much like Liz Cheney from what we see of the transcript of what she said. It was what what unites those two speeches in a way that is very refreshing is that it's, it's defiance and unapologetic from a position of strength, from a, from an understood position that they're in the driver's seat and that the, the wing of the party that is beholden to Donald Trump, the president in exile has lost is on the back foot and needs to be informed of the fact that they have lost political capital and need to regain it. And you need to regain it from me. Well, and the timing here is important with the impeachment trial about to begin, right? I mean, it's very, this speech would have landed in a different way, I would argue, if it happened post-impeachment trial. I mean, he's saying this before he's going to have to cast a vote about about Donald Trump. So I think that's also important. And the same same goes for Liz Cheney standing up before, you know, when there are risks, political risks for them, and just saying this is is a matter of conscience. Republicans respond to strength and self-assuredness. They, right. they, they, well, they, they sort of have a, a preternatural understanding of weakness. They well, smell this, that yeah, and this, this is actually such a good point because I'm sorry to interrupt you because what we've heard, and I think this, you know, this idea from the left that, uh, you know, Republican conservatives just love a strong man. They just want a strong, all along, they've just wanted a dictator to take over. In fact, they admire strength, which is the opposite of a strong man, right? That, that the strength that they admire is the one that you're describing, Noah. Right. Well, I mean, there are two a- aspects of that. One, uh, Kristen Solis Anderson, the Republican pollster, says that as she under as she looks at the at the balance of Trump's career and everything that she saw from 2015 onward, that strength was the key to Trump's popularity. That Republicans like strength; they want a strong leader. They like strength. That doesn't mean they want a they necessarily want uh, an authoritarian leader, but they want a strong leader. And that if you think about Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and the people who were seriously going up against Trump in 2015, 2016, and Jeb Bush and all of this, how did they respond and react to Trump when he came at them? 
they responded with caution. They responded with kit. They responded with uh, efforts to square the circle and split the baby and figure out ways to accept this part, but not that part. And, and all of that, uh, rather than going right back at him or going or saying, you know, I don't care if I win or lose this election, I'm going to say X, Y, or Z. In fact, because they, they weren't strong. They weren't, they, they had a, they had an aggressor coming at them and they panicked and they froze like deers in the headlights at different times or whatever. And they, and, and things went on like that. Sass is an interesting example of the Hobson's choice that faced Republicans when Trump came in. He was a Trump critic. He wouldn't, you know, he didn't, uh, yeah, he he opposed Trump's nomination, and then when he came in, there was some thought among the never Trumpers or among the Trump critics in the Republican Party that he would kind of be the leader of the anti-Trump wing of the Republican Senate, and he really didn't play that role. He published a, a, a couple of books in which he clearly laid out the theoretical foundations or the practical foundations of what was wrong with the American society that had allowed Trump to take over the Republican Party. And, uh, but it was all uh, suggestive or it was all sort of, you know, uh, it was all something you were supposed to uh, come through and an understanding of on your own. And he was, he then moved into a cautious and prudent stance about Trump to the extent that he could. And he, I think more than other Republicans started understanding what a poison chalice this was, that you couldn't satisfy Trump by being a person who gave him your votes but didn't give him your fealty. There was no satisfying him. That Trump's strength uh, vitiates any possibility for other Republicans under him to show comparable strength. He wants them weak. He's strong. That's why it's better for him. It's, I'm sure, much more emotionally satisfying to him to see Kevin McCarthy twist himself into pretzels and behave like an unprincipled weasel because he wants to hang on to power in any way, shape necessary and getting his ring kissed. Because it's not only that he's strong, it's that he, you know, basically sucks on the weakness of guys like Kevin McCarthy. And now you have Marco Rubio. We would go going back to to Mitt Romney and the and the child tax credit idea. I'm telling you right now that Marco Rubio in 2016 could have just could, could just Marco Rubio could have made the child tax credit uh, proposal if he had thought that that was the way to go with his with his coalition. It's all positioning, and none of it is strong. You know, I don't know how strong Sass is. I mean, I don't know if this is strength, really. He is, it's after courage all. courage of your own convictions. Huh? It's right. just the courage of your own convictions. Right. Um, Which is the same, I mean, right. insofar as Donald Trump has convictions. The fact that Mexico is sending murderers and rapists over the border is a conviction. Right. And when you're challenged on that by every single person in the room, and you still adhere to it, that's courage. And people respond to it, right? Well, I, I think also in the in the case of uh, Cheney and Sass and all of this, maybe part of what happened here is that all of this required a test. Uh, you know, the Cheney thing was an interesting test. We didn't know how it was going to go. We didn't know whether Matt Gates was going to go to 
Wyoming and like not get 25,000 people there and get her recall, whatever, however you, I don't think there's a recall provision. You can't recall a congressman, but um, you know, or, or that, or that that vote was going to be three to one in her favor, as long as it was uh, with a, with a secret ballot. Like we, we didn't know that the only way, you know, at some point is to test the conviction. You know, it's like, uh, you know, to figure out whether someone has been courageous, they need to go through a, they need to go, they, you know, uh, and Liz Cheney made a bet. um, And some of it may have been that she couldn't live with herself otherwise. And some of it may have been that, you know, look, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm elected by these people. They know me and uh, I'm going to do what I have to do. And my guess is that they're all going to, that, that, that I'll be fine. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have to give Liz Cheney a little more credit. I think she took one look at Matt Gates and was like, eh. I mean, he's not like all hat, no cattle. He's more like all hair, no cattle. Like the guy is, I, I don't think she saw him as a real threat. I think the threat, which she's correct to be concerned about was the, is the broader shift in how the Republican party voters loyalties can or cannot be manipulated after by Trump after he'd left office. You know, there was a weird moment. Uh, better though, because I mean, Sass isn't up for another six years. So if you're going to go after him in a primary, you have to stew for the better part of a decade. Um, Jamie's going to face a primary challenge. I don't know the kind of strength that it seems like the, the um, farm team is a little lackluster down the, down in the Wyoming ballot, but nevertheless, she'll face somebody. Um, and she nevertheless, uh, invited that kind of a primary challenge and is going to, you know, perhaps reap the whirlwind, but good for her. She's take, she's inviting that test in a way that you can't say SAS is necessarily. But if she invites that test and she passes the test as she passed it in the house Republican conference this week, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. Like she will be a very formidable person uh, and not that she isn't now, but but uh, she will have said, "I I did what I had to do. Go ahead, you know, you make your choice. And if they say we like you, maybe we didn't like your choice, but we like you. I mean, that is, uh, you know, you don't get confirmations uh, that kind of powerful confirmation that you've done the right thing very often." Like it's much more muddy. This will be a very this will be a very clear event in the case of of, of Liz Cheney. Let's talk about another of today's sponsors, ExpressVPN, because you know social media and big tech are trying to curb our rights and freedoms by attempting to deplatform speech they don't agree with. In response, you could just deactivate all your social media accounts, but that would be giving the left just what they want in the first place. Instead of letting big tech sites try to control your speech, why not revoke their right to your data? That's why you can choose to protect your online data by using ExpressVPN. Look, they track your searches, they track your video history, they track everything you click on, and then they sell your valuable data to each other. So when you use ExpressVPN, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address, which makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from eavesdroppers on your network, and the app couldn't be easier to set up. You just tap one button on your phone or computer, and you're protected. It's finally time to say no to censorship and take back your online privacy with the VPN I trust at expressvpn.com slash commentary. By visiting my link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. Again, that's e x 
P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary, expressvpn.com slash commentary to protect your data today. Um, so uh, I don't want to harp on this because we harp on this constantly, but I feel the need to harp on this. Uh, uh, an epi- a public health person named Liana Wen, who writes a column for the Washington Post, our, our favorite paper this morning, um, uh, went on Twitter and has a piece basically saying vaccines are, this is the way to get out of this, and we're going to get out of this with the vaccines, but you're going to have to wear 11 masks and 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 b- dig a hole and, and, and bury yourself in it until, you know, we'll be out of this by the beginning of 2022. And, uh, and uh, of course, Jen Psaki, the White House uh, press secretary, once again said, um, yeah, when you get your vaccination and you're all vaccinated, you have to continue to do everything exactly the same as you do it now. And all the public health officials are saying stuff like this and it's going on like this. But this, by the way, John, is the optimistic take from the public health side of things. And this is really sunny. Because the the not so optimistic take <clears throat> we got yesterday from Dr. Christopher Murray, who directs the IHME, the Institute for Health and Metrics and Evaluation, which is part of I think Johns Hopkins, um, and they've been part of our lives now for the better part of a year on the the really gloomy side of things. And his diagnosis is variants, man. Oh, the variants! The variants are coming for you. They're going to be variating, and variants are going to be various all over the place forever. And it's going to basically become a seasonal flu, but like a super flu. So it'll come back every season and it'll have a death rate that's roughly 10 times as high as the regular flu. And this is just our life for in perpetuity. That's that's the gloomy pessimistic side. So if you're if you're disinclined to embrace that version of history, then you will you have no choice but to wear five masks forever. Well, okay. so I want to propose a theory and Abe, I want you to respond to it. My theory is this, that. um, uh, everybody uh, responds and is controlled by uh, incentives. Some of them are, are obvious, uh, you know, money and fame and, uh, you know, whatever, what's good for their families and all this. And then uh, there are some incentives that 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 uh, that are, are kind of invisible. And then there are incentives that uh, people never cop to or own up to. In the case of the public health bureaucracy that is telling you that you need to continue to live uh, under the exact strictures that you have been living under, uh, once you no longer are at risk for contracting uh, the virus, even though I understand that there is some uh, set of theories that this isn't exactly a vaccine precisely. So somewhere in your mucous membranes, you can somehow store the virus if it passes through your body and then you can excrete it out to other people or some some version like that, and I'm not a doctor, obviously, and I'm not it, so I'm in no position to judge the series. You know how how incredibly obvious that should be that we should all understand it. Um, if you are a public health person, you have a perverse incentive to continue to advocate for draconian and life denying <laughs> measures because. You have never had it so good. They want you on TV three times a week. They are, you have 250,000 followers on Twitter. You're writing op-eds for the Washington Post. You are now at the center of the most important conversation in the world. And the thing that 
this conversation needs to have happen is for it to end and for us to go somewhere else and not talk about this anymore. But there is a world of people for whom that will be death. They, this is the best thing that ever happened to them. They're getting rich. They're getting famous. They're getting, you know, they're getting the respect of their fellow people come to them like they are the the, the Oracle of Delphi. They do not have an incentive to say, yeah, you know, you know, get your vaccine and then go about your, your daily life. There is a part of them that is rewarded by the continuing preachment of a draconian life under COVID. Which I don't think necessarily means that they are insincere, by the way, uh, in these warnings. I think, I think part of being an expert in something means that you overinterpret um, data to, to um, sort of fit your obsession or even professional obsession. I mean, this, this happens with, you know, people who are, you know, China hawks or Iran hawks or Russia or whatever it is, you know, like, you know, when, when you are, you, your career is about being vigilant about a threat. And then there is um, evidence that you are correct about something. Um, you will be, you will be, more, much more inclined than other people to interpret the the data as being um, more serious uh, uh, and more um, worrisome uh, than those who don't uh, uh, sh- share your interest. But absolutely, but but there is also this um, simple question of them be having become like a, a priestly class for the time being, and and why would they want to give that up? Well, there's also the the message that's being sent is undermining a far more important message for public health purposes, which is that absolutely everyone should get that shot in their arm. We all need to get the vaccination in everybody's arm. And there are two two interesting things that have developed. One of the New York Times today had a had a newsletter that went out that said it's so it's kind of strange that the you know the most liberal blue states are doing the worst about getting these shots in people's arms and what could possibly be happening here i'm saying this obviously dripping with sarcasm because what's happening is exactly what we all predicted would happen if you made equity and racial politics and you know basically wokeness uh if that was elevated above public health you're going to see a problem getting shots in people's arms and that is what is happening and and it, of course the euphemist the, the nice euphemism that the times used wasn't that it was oh well it, they seem to be elevating process over just getting the shot in people's arms so this message that even if you and the message from Saki yesterday about how well you still have to nothing will change even though you've got the vaccine has the weird un, i mean and i agree with abe i don't think she's saying this because she's you know trying to make people miserable but it will have the unintended effect for a certain listener of hearing well then what is the point of getting the vaccine or what's the point of listening to public health officials right I mean, even right. Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci, who talks about the threshold at which point we'll have achieved herd immunity, which is something in the range of 70 something, says even at that stage, we can begin to approach a degree of normalcy. <laughs> Approaching, so it's not yet there, a degree, undefined, could be 1% of normalcy. That's madness. It's just simply insane. It's not going to happen. And to, to rest your reputation on that seems like a really dumb bet. I mean, look, the simple, to be as bloodless and cold and heartless as possible, part of the idea here is to get to a level at which it's not the level at which nobody on earth will ever contract 
a, this uh, this very some version of this coronavirus, or that people won't die from it. That is not the aim of this public health regimen. It is to ensure that the vast majority of people are protected against it, uh, and that it 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 reduces to the level of a. Uh, manageable and uh, ongoing kind of disease that 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 is now afflicting people. Like we don't shut the economy down over now. This is where the parallel to the flu is real. We do not shut the economy down for a bad flu, right? We should, and and I think now the more I, you know, the more these numbers come out, you know, clearly uh, even the most even uh, deep pessimists i don't think would have gone to 500,000 deaths from coronavirus in a year uh, a year ago so um you know what that what that tells you is that the skepticism and the pandemic ideas and all of that uh you know were were just horribly mistaken but that doesn't mean that you then go to a point at which the idea is coronavirus zero and then everybody can come out and you know go see a baseball but, game but there are there are plenty of interest groups that have influence in the democratic party that are making that argument not just public health we know from the teachers unions are saying we it has the safety where they place the bar for acceptable safety levels is far higher than they would even for, as you say, John, a seasonal flu, which we've had seasonal flus in the past that have killed like 80,000 Americans. I mean, these are, we've had really bad years with the flu and they tend also to kill more, uh, not just the elderly, but also children and, and young men and women. So we, we have some experience with the risk management that we all should and, and can continue to do. But the, but the idea that there, the risk should be less than zero in order to get back to normalcy is the part which I think weirdly feeds into to the conspiracy theorizing in this sense. If someone's saying that absolutely you can't tolerate any risk, the conspiracy theories start to go, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. What's going on here really? And then then you see the spiral. So Christine, in in Fairfax County, Virginia, in your uh, school district in DC, uh, the teachers unions are offering these compromises and the compromises seem to take uh, the form of they won't be in the classroom. The kids can go to the classroom. They'll teach on a screen and there'll be some person in the room to, you know, basically be like the hall monitor and say, don't punch each other and, you know, don't, you know, don't hit each other with pencils and all of that. It's interesting because um, this then privileges the teachers. Like I, the whole point about this regime of the lockdown is that everyone is at equal risk from everyone else. Why on earth should it be the case that these school systems should employ people who are at risk from contracting the virus from students? I mean, that's there's no public health benefit to the idea that somebody who is making some kind of weird, you know, daily salary sitting and, you know, playing playing uh, Fortnite or, you know, Minecraft on their iPhone uh, while kids sit in front of them on computer screens – He's not supposed to get it either. Well, it's, it's, and it's all, this is all kind of a weird, at least in DC, um, it's all just a, a token nod to the demands, uh, the serious demands that parents are starting to make of the school system. Because, so one of my sons has the proctor. He's not going to even see his teachers. He's just going to do his remote learning in a classroom for one day a week. Um, 
And there are all kinds of restrictions about that. My other son is in a school where the individual high school, they allowed teachers who wanted to teach in person to come back in small groups. So he, But only, students can only do that with one class a week. So he'll go to his high school for the first time since ever, because he was an eighth grader last year. He'll set foot in a high school next week for the very first time and take one class with a teacher. And then he's not allowed to return to school till the following week and take that same class. Otherwise, everything's remote. So they're, they're not, and there are only a handful of teachers who agreed to do this. So this idea that we're getting back to school is ridiculous. It's not happening. So the unions are trying to say, look, we're doing everything we can. But in fact, they have not budged in terms of their demand of the of the uh, you know education uh, chancellor and of the mayor and they and this is true in other we're seeing this in Fairfax County and other places so it's leading to lawsuits where people are in Chicago they're suing the teachers union um, San Francisco is San Francisco suing the, teachers, in, suing the teachers union legislatures are passing laws that say very simply you have to offer in-person learning as an option. So I, this isn't really even an option. My kid wants to go back to school more than one time, one class a week. He doesn't get that option. The school is not giving him that option. There's a weird inverse relationship that's going on here with both the public health professionals and the teachers and everybody who appears to want to cling to the status quo of 2020 um, is that they're getting more uh, aggressive with their demands as the data is getting better. And across the board, deaths, hospitalizations, and case rates almost across the board in every single state is going in the right direction and has been since January 8. And, you know, that inverse relationship sort of leads to the conclusion that I think John has reached, which is an uncharitable one, granted, but hard to hard to see another explanation. I don't mean this. I didn't mean to say that they that the incentive for the public health uh, community is to keep everybody imprisoned, that that is a conscious that they are conscious of this. Um, but it is very hard for people. I mean, think about social media. It's like, what what, what tweet do you put up that gets retweeted 25,000 times? And what tweet do you put up that gets retweeted three times? And uh, everybody understands that in the world of social media, in the world of the, the present day, you know, way in which we all kind of uh, get attention, um, that the dopamine, your dopamine system is triggered beyond belief by that which gets you the most attention. And so, um, you know, uh, this is almost an, this is, it's not even unconscious. It's like, it's like the incentive is, 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 um, uh, you know, guttural or, or, or it, it bypasses the, it bypasses sort of, um, you know, one's conscience or anything like that and goes to what makes you feel better. What makes you feel better if you're a public health person? Does it make you feel better? Say, you know what? You're going to have to live with a little risk. Everybody has to live with a little risk. The virus isn't going to go away, but obviously, you know, you're going to be vaccinated. You know, don't don't go around and lick people, you know, when you go to a club, but, you know, maybe things, you know, um, does that give them the happiness or is it, I'm sorry. I mean, I understand it's difficult, but you know, we just, just two more years to stop the spread. You know, I mean, and 
two, just just three more years to stop this. Remember, it was two weeks to stop the spread. Well, and we know we we have examples of states like I know I always bring up Florida; it's my home state. So you know, and I have family and friends who who are still there. We have examples of states that have done you know are open with precautions and who are working on the on uh, with the starting point of we have to manage an existing risk not we have to eliminate the risk before we can go back to life as we used to know it and it's really the the, the habituation for the citizens of states that have been on you know which is all of us basically on more permanent lockdowns with schools closed you know that there's a kind of habit of mind that you start to get into that when you go to these other worlds, <laughs> it's it's kind of amazing. You're like, wow, there are people out in the sunshine and, you know, they only put their mask on if they get within six feet of you and it's, you know, restaurants are open, you can sit outside. So it it's weird, um, but it's also, I think, concerning that it, it leads to further a further bifurcation and polarization about stuff that shouldn't even be political in the first place, but that has of necessity become political. Right. Well, I think the ultimate truth here is you have a world in which uh, people are desperate to get the vaccine, right? And people are lining up and they can't get it. I can't get it yet. And, you know, I, I went a couple of times to one of these places at the end of the day to see if they had the extra dose in the bottle, to let me have it before they had to throw it away and I didn't get there in time or they, they, they had already done all the shots that they could do and all of that. Um, and then you have the, the, these phenomena that uh, apparently uh, in the categories, particularly in say in New York, that you, you, you are authorized to get the, the vaccine that um, uh, it's not all up. It's not all in that the Yankee stadium is now a, a, a uh, vaccination site and they have more doses than they have people coming. And there are two reasons for that. One of which is, yeah, because if you privilege certain people over other people, uh, you, li- if the, if the number of people who want the vaccine and, and can access it isn't sort of global, then uh, at some point you're going to start having uh, a demand shortage. And apparently you have it in some of these categories. And then, uh, but in the other, like when all this opens up, if all this talk continues, why is anybody going to rush to get the vaccine? I'll get it when I get it. I mean, okay, so I'm because let's face it, if you've been lived this way for a year and you haven't gotten it and people around you and you haven't gotten it, you're just less frightened than you were a year ago of getting it. I mean, I mean, I, I'm sure that is the case. It's certainly true for me. It's true for friends of mine. And so you're like, well, I mean, I'm not going to like stand on line for four hours to get this if it's not going to make any material change in my existence. I'll get it when I get it. I'll get it when, you know, when I can just walk into Walgreens and there isn't a long line. And that slows down our our journey to herd immunity. So, ah, man. What a mess. Uh I told you yesterday, merch is coming. Uh, get ready to pay through the nose for for, for the merch because it's quality material, and we don't want to lose money on every shirt that you can buy. Uh, I hope we'll have that um, we'll have that uh, website or uh, page on our website up uh, next week, and we can uh, we can uh, sell it to you, sell it to you, <laughs> and you can buy it, and then people walk around saying, "What is crushing morosity?" Uh, Everybody have a great weekend. 
and uh, enjoy the Super Bowl. I hear that, by the way, the Super Bowl is going to be fantastic because they can do all this weird stuff with cameras because the stadium is like two thirds empty. So they're going to have like 50 billion cameras, places that they've never had them before. Could be, uh, could be a lot of, a uh, lot of fun. Anybody have any preferences? Do you want the young guy versus the old guy? Oh, come on. The old guy. Let's go. It's Tampa. It's my, it's right okay. near my hometown. Okay, so. fair enough. <laughs> a- Abe and Noah are big sports guys. So they're really, uh, you know, it's called football. It's a, tell you about the University Christine, of Chicago. Christine just informed me that one of the teams is Tampa. <laughs> um, well, no, I'll tell you, Tom Brady is so much less obnoxious now that he's playing for the Buccaneers than when he was playing for the Patriots. That's just my personal opinion. So he's humbled by having to, you know, embrace his Florida personality now. Uh, you know, Second City, the, you know, really the originating comedy troupe of our of our time started uh, as a as a group at the University of Chicago. And they have a sketch i think they still perform when they come to the university of chicago but it was a it was a sketch where the football coach it was the university of chicago football team which was itself a kind of joke because when the university of chicago decided to become a formidable intellectual school under the stewardship of robert maynard hutchins its legendary president it actually he killed the football program and famously said, when I get an urge to exercise, I lie down until it goes away. That was that was Hutchins about exercise. Before then, Chicago had actually been a football power in the teens and 20s. Anyway, so by the 50s, the second city rolls around, and there's this sketch. It's the University of Chicago football team, and the coach is standing there, and everyone's sitting you know, with, a, with a blackboard, and he holds up a football, and he says, this is a spheroid that's the commentary magazine podcast uh, when it comes to football. So Abe, a football spheroid. Just now so I know. You, you understand the difference between a football and a and a, and a baseball. And Noah, Noah's not much better. I, I don't really understand how it happened that uh, that 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 there's no sports interest. I mean, I've lost most of my sports interest. I mean, I watch it when it's on. I know how to play the game. I enjoy it when it's on. I'm just not. Uh, motivated to turn it on. I watched um, the playoffs two weeks ago, and actually, I didn't watch the. the oh, you did. I, watched, I watched this. I watched the first half. Watch the Highland game, but I watched no. I watched yeah. the. I watched the playoff game. Um, the one that Brady won, um, which was a spectacular game, really enjoyable game. Yeah, it was a great um, game. So every time I watch it, you know, I want to watch it. I just have no interest in it beforehand, so it just it loses me. I, you know, every year I resolve. To follow the Giants, and every year I watch one game, and yeah. then I miss the next one, and then I'm out of the season. I mean, I will say this, which is that I was a very big sports fan, and uh, and successive strikes, first baseball, then football, and bas- like basically uh, the uh, you know the abbreviated seasons, the the killing of the seasons, and all that from the 80s and 90s just kind of ended up destroying my my affection and enthusiasm for 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 sports once once they got out of my system they were sort of always out of my system but i do have to say that this is a very exciting thing to see sort of like the greatest young quarterback uh you know in america and the greatest quarterback of all time at the astonishing the fact that this is the oldest age of any human being on earth is 43, you know, which is like 17 years younger than I am. That's uh, that's really depressing. But nonetheless, 
you know, that's a... I mean, you can't ask for a better psychodrama. Uh, so enjoy the psychodrama, and we will make some reference to it on, on Monday, because at least maybe one of us will watch uh, the Super Bowl. I'm not sure who. Uh, anyway, uh, but for but for now, for Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.